Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to sin who believe in or one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Please pray with me. Uh, Father. The, the words of Jesus Christ are always grave, God, with gravity. And uh, here we have the strong words of our Savior that, that grip our hearts. I, I pray that you would help us, God. I pray you'd help me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, you know I stand before you uh, terrified, Lord, that they would have some anti-gospel mix in the preaching. I pray that it wouldn't be so, but that you would help us today, that you'd fill us with your words and your spirit. And I pray that you'd fill every one of us here, myself included, to hear your word, to repent of spiritual pride, to put on humility, all because Jesus Christ has done everything for us, Lord. We love you. Please be with us today. Fill us with your spirit and do what we cannot do. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I turned it on. Sorry. As we come to this text, and if you have a bulletin, the the title that we have is Repentance from Spiritual Pride. And there's no doubt, as we look at the opening verses of Matthew chapter 18, that one thing that's being characterized by the disciples at this moment is a pride and a, a desire to be lifted up from their brothers. Now, pride in secular world, in our material culture that we live in, pride is something that's exalted. And I'm not talking about the month of June where we have so-called Pride Month. I mean in every area of life. Richard Dawkins is very famous for writing a book, uh, The Selfish Gene, where he talks about pride being the mechanism that all progress is made in humanity. It's by hook and by crook and by trying to get one better on your brother or your sister that things happen. Pride is exalted in the world. We are told that it's a good thing to be proud. But the Scripture tells us the opposite. And even the Scripture talks about pride in a negative way when it regards our secular vocations and calling. And this is very clear in Ecclesiastes Chapter 4 and verse 4, this text really stands out to me as something that um, is very true, obviously. Verse 4, the preacher writes this, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. And how true that is, right? If you see a man who's good at what he does, you can mark it down every time that he's envious of his brother. Except for in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But not only is it contrary to how we behave in this world, it is absolutely contrary to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and how we live with one another. 
The whole discourse of Matthew chapter 18 starts on this note, and it will be taken up the whole time about how we live together in the church. It's important for us as a community to grow in this and to realize it. And here we see that Jesus shows His disciples the necessity of putting off spiritual pride and putting on childlike humility. Now, the purpose of what we see here today, why this matters to us, is that we must see the sinfulness of pride, the exceeding sinfulness of spiritual pride. And second that we would strive for gospel humility. And I hope you see there the, the popular way the Scripture teaches of repentance. It's not just putting off sin. It's putting off and putting on. And that's what we'll be looking at today. But first, I want us to, to attempt to bring out the strength of Scripture that shows that pride is a great sin. This text compels us to see the great sinfulness of pride. And we start this text at this time. The disciples come to Jesus and they they ask a question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, the Gospel of Luke puts it in a slightly different fashion. That is, that they were having an argument and a dispute among one another about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this can be harmonized in a number of different ways. Probably... It's that they're arguing about such a thing. It came to the Savior's notice and then they they came out with it. But whatever it is, we see that pride is manifesting themselves and we might ask, why? Why at this particular juncture in redemptive history, in the Gospel of Matthew, is pride showing itself in such a strong way? Well, we can certainly say generally, pride is common to manifest itself in the community of God's people. I see it many times in my own heart that I want to vaunt myself up in front of my brother as as terrible as that is to confess. It's true. How many times have we seen in churches that we've been a part of that pride takes root and people get in a a sinful competition to get one up on one another? But even in the epistles, don't we see it? The book of 1 Corinthians, the book of Philippians, we see pride taking root and destroying congregations. That's general, but... I would propose to you here that the context of the book of Matthew shows us why pride manifests itself here. And the reason pride manifests itself here is because by God's grace, He has chosen to reveal certain spiritual truths to certain men. Just think about it with me. Matthew chapter 16, what do we see there? We see Peter making the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. By God's gracious and free choice, He chose to show Peter who Jesus truly was. Chapter 17. We see Jesus making a choice, not of all the twelve, not of all the disciples, but of three men to lead them on the Mount of Transfiguration and to show them a vision of Jesus Christ in His glory as He is the culmination and the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament Scriptures. God chose certain men to reveal it to. And then last week, Jesus chose Peter as the sole receptor of the truth that the sons are made free free from all the condemnation of the law, as shown in this particular text. And I really believe that as the disciples see this, this this 
choice that God and the Savior make to show certain people certain things, they begin to argue. Well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is Peter the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because he's seen these things? Or are James, John, and Peter the greatest? And they start to, to puff each other up in this and seek to be the greatest. Now, in all of these examples, as we've shown, God mercifully has chosen to reveal something to some people. And God is good and free to do that. Isn't He? God is not constrained to reveal the same things to every man, woman, and child. He reveals certain things to certain people and He does the same today. And what I want us to see here is that the fruit of God's revealing certain things to certain people, it should have a spiritual and proper response. What do I mean? Well, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm really going to read one verse, but I want us to see this with our eyes, that Paul is dealing with this very subject about the gifts of the Spirit. We see in verse 21, the eye, that is the, in the body, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker and dispensable And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body of the church he's talking about, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that there may be no division of the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Notice verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored... All rejoice together. That is the goal to which God composed the body. He reveals certain things to some. He gives certain gifts to some. He is not obligated to give every gift to every person. But the proper response that we ought to have is one member is exalted by grace and not by work. We rejoice together with that. Because we see it as our body, right? If... Brother Joey is exalted and lifted up among us. We rejoice because part of our body is exalted, right? But we have the photo negative of this in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, don't we? We see Peter, primarily Peter, exalted. We see James and John as well given honor by seeing something revealed of Christ that they previously did not know, but instead of rejoicing at one member being honored, we have jealousy showing its head, right? Instead of humble submission to the will of God to do what He pleases, we see bickering, argument with one another. Instead of operating together as a body, They seek individual glory and self-advancement. This is an improper and sinful response. The disciples at this point believe the lie that the kingdom of heaven operates like the kingdom of this world. Where we exalt ourselves above one another. We work to put others down so that we can be the greatest. And the disciples thought the kingdom of heaven operates in that exact same way. I'm going to achieve greatness, spiritual greatness in the kingdom of heaven by outdoing my brothers and sisters. And Jesus, here, 
He does not ignore what the disciples are doing. And we should take note of that. Because Jesus did not live His life looking for every particular sin that He might point out in every individual heart. If He did that, there would be nothing else that He would do. But He saw this as such an extreme sin against the Kingdom of Heaven and against the Gospel that He chose some of the strongest words in Scripture to battle it. To battle it. Now, the thing I want us to see in particular is not just the strength of Jesus Christ's words in Matthew 18, verses 1-4, through but Jesus saw this as such a great sin that the whole of Matthew 18 flows from this one particular issue. Look with me again to Matthew 18 to see this. The whole chapter flows from the issue of spiritual pride. In verses 5-9, through we see how spiritual pride produces a careless attitude about our own sin and how it affects other Christians. That's what we read this morning, isn't it? Woe to the world for temptations to sin. If you cause one of these little ones to sin, it's better for you to have a millstone hung about your neck and thrown into the depth of the sea. It causes that. Spiritual pride causes a careless attitude about our own sin and how it affects others. Verses 10 through 20, included in that are spiritual or church discipline. But the first five verses show that spiritual pride produces a careless attitude about seeking out God's people who are weak. They wander away from the truth, and spiritual pride produces a character and an attitude that we're not going to go after our brothers and sisters because, well, they deserve it anyway, don't they? They wandered away from the truth, that's their own problem. But that is the fruit of spiritual pride. And verses 21 through 35 are perhaps the most shocking that spiritual pride in the heart produces an unforgiving attitude towards God's people that does not remember the grace of God that has been given to us. All of this chapter has the great theme, the umbrella theme of spiritual pride. And in this in our text today verses 1 through 4, Jesus tells us that this sin is so serious that unless we repent of it, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if Jesus will speak with such strong words regarding this particular sin, it is our duty to examine ourselves to see how this sin manifests in us. And I want us to point out, I did not say if this sin manifests itself in us. We all have a root in ourselves that is capable of producing spiritual pride. But we must, by this text, because it's so serious, root it out as much as we can. What are the manifestations of pride in the people of God? We could list many, many, but I've chosen to list four. The first and the root is an attitude of covetousness. That is, we're discontent and unthankful to God for the place that He's put us in this world. Okay? We're discontent. We're discontent with the gifts that God has given us. Content with what God has chosen to reveal to us. And we see that in these disciples. And this covetousness, covetousness in the heart, is the root and the starting place of every other Sin. And this manifests itself, our, our discontentment of where God has put us, it does not manifest itself 
to our senses and how we deal with God most of the time, but how we deal with other people. How we deal with other people. And covetousness looks on others and says, they don't deserve to have that. I need to have it. And we see that even six months later from this event where Jesus speaks so plainly and clearly, six months later the disciples are falling right back into the same trap. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. This is a month or two before the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, and we see the disciples again falling into this, which should tell us that we easily fall into it as well. Notice chapter 20. We have the the mother of the sons of Zebedee coming with her sons and kneeling before Jesus. And in verse 21, Jesus said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We're able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Notice verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were indignant. Why were they indignant? By God and His free mercy and grace, He chooses these two positions, whatever that might be. But the ten were indignant because they have a covetous heart. God hasn't given me and will not give me what I want for my brothers and sisters. He hasn't given me what is good. This covetousness in the heart is a starting place and the root of all the other manifestations that we'll talk about here. So second, this root of covetousness It doesn't just stay there. It often manifests itself in an attitude of judgmentalism. I don't know if judgmentalism is a word, but that's what I've written down here. Um, Judging our brothers and sisters, looking and nitpicking something to find a fault in. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, that we have a a beam in our own eye, but we are much more content to look for a little speck of dust in our brothers and sisters. Instead of being discontent, which it is, the manifestation of judgmentalism is contempt for other people. And we see this manifested in the Pharisees of this day, isn't it? We see in the the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. In Luke 18, he says he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those words are so important, aren't they? Every word of that. They trusted in what? Themselves that they were righteous. And therefore, they treated others with contempt. Right? Covetousness is looking at others being honored and being mad at God about it. Where judgmentalism is thinking that I've exalted myself above my brothers and sisters and looking down at other people for not attaining the same level. Another manifestation of pride, it comes from the heart and the attitude, and it begins to work out in the action of the church. And we've already discussed this, but I think that our chapter in chapter 18 really highlights this very well. If we have a judgmental and a covetous attitude in our own heart, it's going to produce the fruit of a lack of care for the weak. In verses 5-9, through we see that we have a lack of care about how we lead our own lives, and if we lead other people into sin... Okay? And really, the word here, uh, scandalizo, is talking about forsaking the gospel. We don't even care about it. 
We don't even care about it. We will hold on to our own rights and what we want to do, even if it means a destruction of somebody else's soul. Whether in open defiance or against their conscience, pride manifests itself in this way. And this is what Paul, if we can give one example, is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in verses 12 through 13, as he counsels this church in Corinth. I'll read verse 11. Notice the strong language, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Manifestation of pride is a lack of care for the weak and a not caring if they wander from the truth in verses 10 through 14. And how contrary is this to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he left his eternal throne in heaven to seek out the lost? To seek out you that lived in your sin all the days of your life. Jesus Christ left heaven. He didn't hold on to his own rights, but he came and sought after you. But when we have an attitude in our heart that we don't care if people wander away from the church, good riddance. That this is a manifestation of spiritual pride in our hearts. And notice, and I know I'm having you go a little bit all over the place in Matthew 18, this is strengthened because it's not only against the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done, it's against the Father's will. We know these things can't be separated, but... Notice what's said in verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If that's our will, good riddance, it's not the Father's will. It's not the will that one of these should perish. So, the last thing I have here, and again, we could add many more, is it manifests itself in spiritual pride that promotes a lack of teachability in the church. Okay? Lack of teachability in the church. That is, that if we are spiritually proud, as members or as elders, we will not allow anybody to be a teacher over us. We won't let anybody teach us. We'll only hear people who rubber stamp the things that we already believe. We don't put ourselves in an attitude of discipleship that I'm going to follow after somebody No, far be it from us, because we're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? We are capable in and of ourselves. We don't need the church. We don't need others to tell us what the Bible says. I am completely sufficient for these things. And pride does not allow for this because it it implies that someone else knows more than me. And we won't allow that if we're spiritually proud. We have a fear that if we accept that, that we're not as good as other people. Now, we can offer many examples of this from Scripture, can't we? We think of Cain and Abel. The Cain and Abel come, they offer sacrifice. God accepts the sacrifice of Abel and not the sacrifice of Cain. But John, 1 John chapter 3 tells us the reason for it. Cain hated his brother because his own deeds, Abel's deeds were righteous, where his were wicked. And we saw it today in Brother Joey reading in Numbers 12, didn't we? Moses, Arian, Arian, Aaron, and Miriam. That they could not abide the fact that Moses was the chosen mediator of God's people. They couldn't abide the fact that Moses was the one who was to teach the people. They must be put in the same place. 
They were not teachable. And maybe lastly, we think of Saul and David. By God's grace, he exalted David to the point where he was going to be king on the throne, but Saul could not abide the fact that the people were singing to Saul his thousands and to David his ten thousands. Spiritual pride manifests itself. David cannot show me anything. The Bible speaks very clearly to this and to the lack of teachability. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 speaks powerfully to this. James says this, Know this. Mark it down. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, right? The implanted word which is able to save your soul. Lack of teachability. It can be very soul destructive. And it is a manifestation of pride. Now, as we consider these things, I... I know, I think I know, if you're honest with yourself, there's some form of this in each and every human heart that we must fight against. And it shows the exceeding wickedness of pride and what we just looked at. It destroys the people of God. It destroys the church. It tears it apart at the seams. But Jesus adds to that. How is pride exceedingly wicked? We see it in its outcome. What is the end of unrepentant spiritual pride? Notice, Jesus tells us we must pay the most close attention to what He says here. He says, truly, I say to you. This is the Word of life. The Word of God that created the world. The wisdom of God. That everything that He spoke was truth and glory and God-exalting. But this is so important to Him that He says, listen to me. Mark it down. Pay attention. This is meant to awake us from our slumber. We, we can read through these things and we, we just fall asleep in our mind. We read right past it. But Jesus Christ here tells us that we must wake up and to write it in our hearts and our minds the truth of this statement. If you do not repent, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This sin is so contrary to the Gospel that a life given over to it, to living in it, without any kind of struggle or any kind of repentance, it cannot be the life of faith. It cannot be the life of faith. And to show some parallels with that, I want you to turn to two texts in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. In verse 20, Jesus says a very similar thing. Jesus says, for I tell you, again, mark it down, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, you look at the most holy men externally that you can see with your eyes in this day, and if your righteousness doesn't exceed that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's certainly pointing people to the law that they might repent and come to him, But the point is the same. If you're relying on your externalism, you're relying on your righteousness like the Pharisees did, and you don't have a righteousness that's outside of the law, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Such an attitude of life 
to rest in my own righteousness like the Pharisees did, it's contrary to the life of faith. It's contrary to it. And in chapter 7, we see much the same thing with the terrifying and famous text of Matthew, uh, ending of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, notice that if our life is lived saying Lord, loudly proclaiming Lord, but we don't care what Jesus Christ says. We don't live according to His Word as a manner and a style of life. It is so contrary to the Gospel that it cannot be a true life of faith. And spiritual pride is the same. Not repented of. Not struggled against. Lived in with all of our will going along with it. It is not congruent with salvation. It is a great sin because it destroys the body of Jesus Christ. It destroys the church. And it's a mark of unbelief. We must put it off because of the seriousness of it. But we must as well see that this text compels us to not just put off spiritual pride, but to put on true childlike humility. Okay? And I have it outlined here. We're to put on humility in two different aspects. We're to put on humility toward God and humility toward man. Now, as we read this text, there's the temptation to read it in such a way where it drives us to utter despair because we see in our own hearts there is manifestations of this particular pride. It, it brings itself out in our families and our churches in our own thought life. But this text is not meant to drive us to despair and to doubt our salvation because we don't perfectly exhibit childlike humility. As we've already noted, humility or a lack of humility, pride, manifests itself in the pages of the New Testament in many different areas, and it's something that we must constantly fight and constantly battle. This is not meant to drive us to despair, but Jesus speaks us to drive us to Him. And I want us to think about this. If spiritual pride is contrary to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, I'll tell you something that is perfectly congruent with it. Saying, I have nothing to offer you. No righteousness. No greatness. No work. No honor. I offer nothing to you, Jesus, but my sin, and I come to you as a child expecting you to forgive me. Because you promised to forgive me. The Gospel, in humility, sees the non-sufficiency, not insufficiency, but the non-sufficiency of my own character, my works, the person that I am, and goes to Jesus Christ. And we cry out with the publican, don't we? At the other end of that great parable of the tax collector, We call out in verses 13 through 14 of Luke 18, but the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. And notice this. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the first move that God does for us in the Gospel. He shines the light of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, shows us to be great sinners in His sight, and says, come to Me. Not bringing anything in your hands for a title of life, but only My free mercy and grace to forgive sinners. And Jesus gives a fitting illustration of this by taking a child and putting it in the middle of the disciples and saying, this is what you are to become like. Now, we might ask ourselves, how are we to become like little children? certainly doesn't mean that we're to become like little children in every single way that a little child acts. And we might even say, goodness, there's times where I look at my child and they're certainly not humble. That would not be the first word that I would use to characterize how they're acting at this moment. But I want us to first see what it, what it doesn't mean. Okay, Being a child... Becoming a child does not mean being emulating children in every way. And I just want to give us a witness from the New Testament to speak, speak to this. Okay, um, So first, in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, we're considering putting on childlike humility. We ask, what does that mean? It doesn't mean being a child in every possible way. Because in Ephesians chapter 4 we see that it's contrary to what we should be aiming at as Christians in the Gospel. Um, Galatians, or Ephesians chapter 4, notice with me, verses 13 through 14. And in the context, teachability, God gives teachers to the church of God, and He tells us why He gives teachers to the church of God. It's for the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, notice, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature, and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Okay? We're in a childlike state. We need to grow past a childlike state through teaching of the church, not to be like children in a certain way, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're not to be like children in these ways. And the other two texts are in 1 Corinthians. Uh, to quickly read through that, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're not to become like children in every way because Paul speaks of this negatively. He says to the church in Corinth, but I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but in contrast to that, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Right? Couldn't couldn't address them as spiritual people because they they were displaying a childlike character in a negative way. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 14, we see the last text here. It says, brothers, in verse 20 of chapter 14, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And so, if we see that when Jesus says become like little children, He doesn't mean it universally, that we need to act like children in every way. We might ask, well, what does He mean? What Jesus Christ primarily has in mind here is that we become like little children in our status. The disciples were doing the opposite of this. They were seeking to be the greatest in the kingdom of God by their own works and their own self-advancement. But Jesus places this little child and says, be like this child because the child is the lowest rung of human society. A child 
has no position in society, especially in that day that Jesus Christ spoke. Slave was above a child could tell a child what to do. A child has no rights. Now, something came to my mind yesterday. My daughter sometimes acts as if she really does have rights and really does have a position. She'll try to assert those rights. But I find it fascinating, and this might be a bad illustration, but my dog doesn't even respect the authority or the position of my child in the house. My dog listens to everybody when, he say, when we say, Jess, go come. But when my daughter says it, she can scream with the top of her lungs. He doesn't pay any attention. He might even look at her like, eh, what are you, you going to do about it? So this text is not calling us to be children by providence. A child is born into a state of humility and has no choice in the matter. This text is calling us to willingly put ourselves in the lowest possible degree. To put ourselves low and to esteem everybody is better than ourselves. That's what Jesus Christ is talking about. He's telling us to, to humble ourselves first before God. Before God. How do we do that? We humble ourselves before God in confession of our sin, confession of our spiritual pride, and believing that just as this little child is cared for by his mother or father, not because he does everything right, but because he's a child. We come to God with nothing, confess our sins, and in faith believe that God will take care of us. And I just ask you, brothers and sisters, do you see pride in yourself? I hope you say yes. Because it's only those who see pride in themselves who can be offered the hope of the gospel here. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Through Christ and because of His sacrifice, we can pursue humility. Jesus isn't putting on us a covenant of works that if I'm not a perfect child in every way that the Bible calls me to be, I'm going to go to hell. He's died for the spiritually proud. That now, in freedom, we can seek to be children in Jesus Christ. And when we fail, we're not driven to despair, but we go to God again in faith and humility and repentance. Now, we are not only to be humble toward God, but we're to be humble toward men. And I would propose to you today that if you are humble towards God, you will of necessity be humble towards men. By knowing ourself, we become humble toward other people, don't we? Um, and again, my own personal experience counts for nothing, but I'll, I'll tell you the truth. The more that I, I grow in, in, in the office of elder, nothing makes me more scared for somebody's soul than if they come into my office and I can tell they just have an attitude and air of spiritual superiority about them. Nothing makes me doubt somebody's salvation, whether I'm wrong or right, than an air of spiritual superiority that they're better than other people. It makes me scared. But on the contrary, on the, in the contrast, on the other hand, nothing makes me rejoice more about somebody than when they come into my office and they say, with a sincere heart, I'm the chief of sinners. Nobody could be possibly be worse than I am, and yet I believe in Jesus Christ. This is a mark of true saving faith. That we see ourselves really and truly as the chief of sinners. Paul's not trying to be poetic or, or, or fake humility there. Do you see yourself that way? God, by His words, He illumines the sins in our own heart. He typically doesn't just illumine the sins in our and our brothers and sisters. And if you see the sins of other people more clearly than you see the sins of yourself, you might want to 
Examine that. Examine that. That's why we, we read today in Philippians chapter 2, in particular in verse 3, that when Paul is talking to the church in Philippi, Philippi that was struggling with spiritual pride, he gives them the most wonderful piece of advice. Uh, in chapter 2, in verse 3, he says to these people, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. And what I'm proposing is that's the natural fruit of the Gospel in our life. That if we see our own sin, the Holy Spirit illumines that. We're the chief of sinners. It's not going to be we're faking that other people are more significant. We really think so. We really think so. People are more significant than ourselves. In this... We emulate our Savior. Isn't that the point of the rest of Philippians chapter 2, especially in verses 5 through 8? Jesus laid aside everything and came and sought us. He laid aside His rights and lived in service to us, took on the form of a slave and a servant, the lowest part, but Christ didn't stop at that humility. Christ humbled Himself all the way to the death on the cross. All the way to death on the cross. He so esteemed God's elect people, that He put Himself under the curse of the law and went as far down as any human being has ever gone. And we're called to do the same thing. We lay aside our, li- our rights, we live in service to others, and we demonstrate the sacrificial life of Christ to the world and to the church. We are called to do this to all men. And I, I would just, as an aside, <coughs> that we are not just to humble ourselves to all men, Generally, but we're, we're to do it in discipleship. Right? We, we've already talked about that to a degree. There's an unteachability that manifests itself as a part of spiritual pride. And I fear that in our, our current American culture, especially church culture that's common, American individualism has so crept in that, that the individual is the only thing that matters. We don't live as a body of people anymore. We don't submit in discipleship to anybody. It feeds our pride. The Bible calls us clearly to put ourselves in submission to teaching. And I'm not speaking to you as your elder like you need to submit to me better. I'm saying that me and Joey, we need to submit to one another in teaching. We need to submit, I would propose to you, to to theologians and good believing people that have gone before us that are dead at this point. That's a reason why me and Brother Joey are part of an association of pastors that we go and we seek to be discipled by these men in ways that we fall short. We must be discipled. And the thing that brings this out to me, okay, is because the New Testament uses the word child in this way. Uh, I just was working this week and I put into my Logos Bible software, child, and I tried to see every instance where it was used in the Scripture and tried to narrow it down a little bit. It's shocking to me, and I think it'll come to your mind, how many times Paul calls the people in the churches that he planted his children. He calls Timothy his child. He calls Titus his child. But especially in the book of 1 John, oh, my little children, right? That's how he talks about us. That child is used as a synonym by the apostles for discipleship. For discipleship in the church. Do we put ourselves in the position of a child, not just before God, but, but before those in the church who God, by His grace, 
has put over us. Um, we're, we're called to do that, but we, we also must maintain humility in discipling other people as well, right? Paul didn't think he was better than other people just because he discipled them. Peter didn't think so. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we're not to lord it over the faith of those, right? But be an example to the flock and to do it with joy. And so, lastly, today, I want us to see that not only are we to put off spiritual pride, put on humility, but Jesus Christ gives us a wonderful promise in verse 4 of our text. A wonderful promise. After the great warning, he says, whoever, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is very reminiscent to other things Jesus says, isn't it? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. We're not to seek humility within our mind. Well, if I, if I put myself last, I know I'm really better than other people, but maybe God will exalt me if I fake it till I make it. That's not what's being said here. If we truly own our own humility and, and put away out of our mind that God accepts those who do great things, God exalts the humbled. What is esteemed in the sight of men is an abomination in the sight of God. Humility is what God honors in this life. Again, because it's congruent with the gospel. It accepts who we are as creatures, who we are as sinners, that God came to save us, and we can do nothing to add to it. And we must trust God with our exaltation. With our exaltation in the next life primarily. And I'm going to end today by reading in Luke chapter 14. If you'll turn there with me. Luke chapter 14. As Jesus Christ gives this parable of the wedding feast... He gives us good and proper motivation for humbling ourselves before men. Jesus here in the context is invited to a party. And uh, we see here Jesus telling this parable to proud men. Now he told a parable in verse 7 of those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So what Jesus did is he's in this party and he notices that the men who come, they're, they're picking and choosing, oh, that's a place where I'll get a lot of recognition and attention. That's a place of honor and I want to sit there. And Jesus says this to these people. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. You will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers and sisters, this just is the desire that this would characterize our little church. That we would honor one another above ourselves. That we'd seek the good of one another above ourselves. And that we would count each other more significant than ourselves. Because we believe that God came and saved not the righteous, not the great. He came and saved the worst, the sinners, the publicans, the harlots of this world. And so, in conclusion today... I believe that this text 
tells us two things that we ought to do. We must see that spiritual pride is an exceedingly sinful sin that must be repented of, that is absolutely, totally contrary to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The fruit that ought to be bore by a believing Christian. And secondly, that we must put on childlike humility, taking the lowest place in our hearts among our brothers and sisters and trusting God that He would exalt us. And you know, as we turn to the Lord's table today and think about the Lord's table, we're reminded once again that Jesus puts this forward as the example that we're to follow. That because Jesus Christ died, humbled Himself to death, so we must do the same thing. Brother.